every American should realize that they will not be able to protect themselves in court if the courts are biased and are subject to this kind of political attack. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court and the judiciary. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover these things for Slate magazine. There have been plenty of court-related headlines in the past few weeks while we were focusing on our election meltdown series with the president's call for two justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to recuse themselves in all Trump-related matters because he says they're biased. More abuse from the president directed at the judge and jury forewoman in the Roger Stone trial. Attorney General William Barr hinting he might quit if the president keeps tweeting, but I guess getting over it, getting over it is the new integrity. Next Wednesday, the court hears arguments in June Medical. That's the abortion challenge, raising the same exact issue as Whole Women's Health, decided in 2016. We will devote the next show to covering those arguments and what comes next. This week, because there is just too much, too, too much happening, Slate Plus members are going to have access to a brand new segment in the second half of the show with Slate's own fantastic Mark Joseph Stern, wherein Mark is going to try to round up all the big Supreme Court and federal appellate court news we just cannot get into the main show, like the Supreme Court's decision to take up a controversial Philadelphia religious freedom case next term and a Second Circuit ruling this week on sanctuary cities plus the court's 5-4 opinion in a cross-border shooting case. To become a Slate Plus member and access that and a whole bunch more ad-free bonus Slate content, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. You're also supporting Slate and all the journalism we do here. Now, I want to turn to what has become a kind of foundational question when we think about the Supreme Court, the federal courts, and the rule of law. And it's a big, big question that thus far we've just not really been able to answer. On one side, we have the conservative legal establishment, this juggernaut that is the Federalist Society and the well-funded, often very secretive legal groups that have packed the courts with lifetime appointments for very young, hardline judges. The left's answer to that machinery, rather more muted includes the ACS, or American Constitution Society. And this week, after a lengthy search, ACS announced that Russ Feingold, the former Democratic senator from Wisconsin, will lead the group in its efforts to push back against what's been a sea change in the federal judiciary and what Feingold sees as fundamental threats to the independence of the Justice Department. Senator Feingold, who served on the Judiciary Committee for 16 of his 18 years in the Senate, has among the items on his new to-do list at the helm of ACS the job of answering the conservative juggernaut question. He has to think about ways to counter the more than 190 new judges that have been seated, including two Supreme Court justices and more than 50 federal appeals court judges, all of whom are going to shape the legal landscape for probably decades to come. So, no mean feat. Very excited to talk about it. Welcome to Amicus, Senator Feingold. Well, Dahlia, I'm thrilled to be on your show. Uh, Your role in in making uh, understandable for the American people, the court system, particularly the Supreme Court, is one of the critical things that has to be done. And frankly, uh, uh, American Constitution Society uh, relies on this kind of communication to get its message out, which is that we have got to really up the fight 
against the attack on the rule of law uh, so that everybody can participate in the legal process and so uh, we can have progressive change uh, in the legal system. Uh, you are right that uh, the conservative right has run the table on us. Uh, and we have got to mount uh, the strongest fight we've ever done uh, to restore the rule of law and to have a fair opportunity uh, to have progressive change occur. So I guess we'll just stipulate, and, and I don't think this is a controversial proposition, that you now arrive at ACS kind of burdened with at least some sense that huge, huge damage is done, that in a really compressed amount of time, we've seen a sea change uh, in the courts. And uh, you probably read a couple of articles this week about even the Ninth Circuit is changing in front of our eyes. More than a third of its active judges are Trump judges reporting from LA Times suggesting that, you know, some of these judges are even before the paint dries on their new chambers, you know, calling to take things uh, en banc and trying to reverse uh, Longstanding precedent, so there's this sense that it's it's really all happening very quickly, and circuits are flipping. They're going to continue to flip, and I, I guess I I wonder if sort of absent big structural reform, you know, whether it's court packing, you know, adding new judgeships to the Supreme Court or creating a whole bunch of new circuit court seats or term limits for sitting federal judges or jurisdiction stripping, you know, the idea that we just take some issues away from the courts. Um, all of those things are floating around in the ether as possible solutions. But I guess the question for you is, isn't the damage already irreparable? Well, it's a very de depressing development, and it's a, a huge challenge uh, to see uh, very young ideologues uh, put on the court intentionally uh, to try to lock down the courts for future generations. I like to kid around that for those who have to take property law in law school, there's a, a, a rule called a rule against perpetuities, which means you can't lock down your, 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 uh, your possessions for several generations into the future. But the right in this country is trying to do that, essentially create the dead hand of their generation to dominate our legal system for uh, many years to come. And so we're at the bottom of the pit right now. Uh, but, you know, it sort of reminds me, maybe it's not the best comparison, but I remember when Lyndon Johnson wanted a landslide in 1964 that uh, some of the uh, magazines at the time, Time magazine said, is this the end of the Republican Party? In other words, uh, there's this sort of momentary feeling that nothing's going to change. But the one thing I am certain about the American people is they tend to go back and forth. And although this is a very troubling time, and the conservative right has taken maximum advantage of, of tilting our legal system, this will turn around. It may turn around this year. It may turn around in a few years. But ACS and, and all the people in the legal system who are concerned about this have to have both a short-term and long-term strategy to reverse this problem. And uh, that, that is exactly the challenge uh, that I face, uh, along with other leaders, uh, who are concerned that the legal system and our institutions are under unprecedented attack. It sounds as though you're at least open to some kind of structural reforms, you know, that, that it's not your position that, you know, the, if, for instance, uh, a Democrat wins the White House and Democrats uh, gain the Senate, that we necessarily go back to the filibuster rules and the blue slips and all the things, the systemic uh, disadvantages. I think um, the other question, the harder question is, are you open to at least talking about court packing? Are you open to talking about term limits or just sort of best not to talk about any of this and no, hope I'm, that... I'm 
I'm not, Dolly, I'm not just open to it. I'm going to talk about it right now. Uh, <laughs> but, but in the context of the fact that ACS doesn't take specific positions on issues like this, but it does try to play a lead role on trying to foster a conversation uh, with experts across the country who are looking at this issue. So, look, I'll be honest. I told my students here at Stanford Law School the other day that throughout most of my life, I was horrified at the idea of, you know, term limits for, for Supreme Court justices or, you know, packing the court. I, I remember when I was lucky enough to be at uh, Hyde Park uh, to receive an award from the Roosevelt Foundation that I asked them a question about court packing. And the person turned to me, was giving me the tour and said, um, Senator, here we refer to court reform. <laughs> you know, so, right. so, but, you know, the, the right has always cited the, the attempt at so-called court packing by Franklin Roosevelt as being some of the outrageous thing. But what have they done? They have packed the courts. They have packed the Ninth Circuit. They have packed the appeals courts with right-wing ideologues for the specific purpose of dominating those courts for the future. So we have to go back to the founding of the country. And and this does nothing to do with political party. This is something that I think is not only bi- not just bipartisan, I think it's nonpartisan. We all know that the founders of this nation never anticipated that people would have a very reasonable expectation of living to 90 or 100 years old and that there would be a political movement in this country based on ideology and, and harsh partisanship, to try to put 35- and 40-year-olds on there to dominate the courts for 50 or 60 years. This could not have been anticipated, and it can't be right. And so, yes, I think uh, ACS and others should have a real conversation with, you know, there's brilliant academics around the country that have written pieces about, you know, should there be an 18-year uh, limit on, on a Supreme Court justice? Uh, should there be, uh, as you say, more justices? Uh, people uh, seem to think that, uh, that there's always been nine justices. That's not true historically. Uh, the, the Constitution allows the setting of the number of, of justices uh, to be done by the Congress with the president. And so I'm not advocating any one of these things, but clearly something is wrong when we have to worry about the health uh, of, of elderly justices who are begged to stay in the court longer than may be in the interests of their health and their family. This is, this is wrong, and there has to be a, a solution. And so I'm looking forward to having a very serious conversation with the students across the country at these over 200 law schools, uh, with uh, academics, with lawyers, and with the public at large. Do they really think uh, the current system is appropriate given the realities of, uh, of life and politics in the 21st century. I so appreciate you being willing to engage on these issues because I have just been so disheartened by watching all the primary debates and the, the utter failure to talk about any of the ACS issues that you're raising, whether it's the politicization of the judiciary, the sort of breakdown at the Justice Department, structural court reform, and, and just complete silence on these issues from the candidates. And sort of the reason I wanted to talk to you about how we talk about these issues is exactly what you just said. The failure to discuss it, the failure to put it into the public discourse doesn't make it go away. It just means that when we hear the words court packing, we kind of freak out. And I wonder if part of the reason that none of the nominees really want to engage in conversations about how 
bad the changes in the judiciary have been is just because, I don't know, it's irreparable, the damage is done, or because the solutions would be too radical for voters. And so I I guess I just want to ask you, maybe I'm wrong and you're wrong, and this is a smart strategy to just pretend that the courts don't matter and the Justice Department doesn't matter, or if there's some way to kind of goose this issue so that it is front and center going into the general election. That's a great question. And the first thing I would say, uh, sort of in defense of the candidates, is I understand their reticence in terms of talking about this, because in the past, um, the idea of court packing or you know somehow going after the federal judiciary through the Congress has been something that the right uh, has talked about because of their claim that the uh, courts were too activist, for example, under Earl Warren's uh, chief justiceship. I remember uh, there used to be uh, billboards, impeach Earl Warren. Uh, And so I think there's a reticence to sort of open the door uh, to a sort of politicized way to attack the very structure of the court. Of course, you're not hearing this from the right now because they have control. Uh, The problem is, is, is that this issue is fundamentally distorting our federal judiciary, allowing previous generations to completely dominate the world and the reality of of future generations. And so I would say it is time for all of us to get over that reticence and to try to figure out a solution. So how do we do it? Well, these debates, I think we've had enough uh, shouting between the candidates about, you know, health care plans and some of those issues. Yes, the, the moderator should be encouraged to ask questions about this. How do people feel about the court? How do they feel about life tenure? How do they feel about the number of justices and other solutions? Uh, ACS does not have a position specifically on this, nor will I as president of ACS. But that doesn't mean, as you say, there shouldn't be a very serious conversation during the primaries and then in the final debate uh, between uh, whoever the Republican nominee is and the Democratic nominee. This is an important time for the American people to hear this as an issue. This is an important time for the American people to see uh, how critical the composition of the United States Supreme Court and the federal judiciary is to their daily lives. You know, the the Declaration of Independence uh, promises all Americans the opportunity to pursue happiness. You cannot effectively pursue happiness in a society where the legal system is tainted, where the average person can't feel trust that the legal system is legitimate. That's what's at stake here. And it needs to be put in those terms as well as the specific ideas that are out there. Uh, And if you do this during a presidential debate, when proposals are actually made, uh, possibly for constitutional amendments, possibly for legislation, then the American people are prepared for the possibility of these changes. uh, And they may find them uh, more reasonable because somebody took the time to talk about it. So I've been grousing about this for, uh, I guess I've been covering the court for 20 years. So let's say for 20 years, I've been grousing about the fact that I think that progressives have done a really bad job of communicating to the American public what it is that a progressive judge does. And that uh, sort of Republicans and conservative uh, legal theorists have kind of occupied the field. They have put down all these markers where they say, you know, we believe in strict construction and originalism or, you know, original intent or balls and strikes. And we believe in minimalism and humility. And and you and I, I think, don't need to belabor the ways in which some of those are just, you know, shell games. They don't actually represent a judicial theory, but they're awfully compelling as rhetoric. And 
Um, I've found myself so frustrated, even covering, you know, the John Roberts hearing, the the Sam Alito hearings, uh, with the sort of democratic answer to that is like, oh, we just want judges who have good hearts. You know, we want uh, what I call the the cardiologic model of, you know, progressive jurisprudence. And and I know you have never uh, made those claims, but I, I do wonder if, you know, part of what's hard in terms of what ACS is trying to message is that we don't have a really good descriptive theory of the case. We don't have a way of saying progressive judges do X. And I wonder if you could give me your sort of best pitch on what you would say we are looking for or what we ask for in judges that is kind of the answer to a humility, balls and strikes, strict construction, whatever the talking points are that are so salient when they come from the right. Well, this is the old, uh, of course, $64,000 question here. This is the fundamental issue for ACS and for progressives across the country. There has to be a rigorous and coherent philosophy of what the court should do vis-a-vis the Constitution. Now, as we know, the conservative right in this country has seized the mantle of originalism, and they have used it uh, in a way, as you suggest, that is sort of effective in terms of if you ask people in a poll, do you think uh, judges should follow the original intent of the founders? Well, of course people are going to say yes. That is our foundational document. That is the basis of our system. Without it, the government is not legitimate. And so that sounds good on its face. But as many uh, great scholars across the country have demonstrated, including uh, Paul Brest at uh, Stanford Law School, where I am right now, and others, uh, including many who are articulating it now, this uh, idea of originalism and original intent has been manipulated. Those on the right uh, find it uh, very helpful when they want to strike down uh, campaign finance reform under supposedly under the First Amendment, uh, but they're not so good about originalism when it comes to the Fourteenth Amendment and the Voting Rights Act, and so it's it's used uh, it's used as a, a weapon, it is used as a shield, and it is manipulated, uh, not based on actual intent. So, what would a progressive judge do? I would think a progressive judge would definitely pay deference to the original te- intent, or at least the, the meaning that the, that the intent would have had at the time. Of course, the text, so-called textualism, that's important. You look at the text. But I think what progressive judges say is, in addition to that, and gaining what you can uh, to understand what the founders intended, uh, then you also uh, apply the law uh, to the current situation, adapting the law to make sure that the law is consistent with the needs of the people in the 21st century. What is the point of a constitution that is so stuck in time that it can't adapt to our concerns? I had a wonderful student in my course on amending the constitution here at Stanford last year uh, write a paper about the need for a constitutional amendment uh, that would address the issue of climate change because clearly the founders could not have imagined uh, something like uh, the kind of climate change that is occurring. So that would be a constitutional amendment. But it, that kind of discussion about certain unanticipated things uh, having to be considered and that the Constitution and its intent has to be at least adapted to the current reality is something that uh, progressive judges hopefully would do. And this is, this is something that I hope to refine uh, for the American Constitution Society and for progressive lawyers across the country. I'm not the, the, the guy that is perhaps best at that in terms of scholars, but maybe I can gather 
um, the f- ideas of the scholars around the country and help put it in terms uh, that people will say, oh, that, that makes sense to me. Of course, we want to respect what the founders uh, felt about this, but we also have to have uh, a reality check on life in the 21st century and have a legal system that actually responds to the problems and concerns of the American people going forward. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now back to our conversation with Russ Feingold, former senator from Wisconsin and the brand new president of the American Constitution Society. I opened in my intro talking about Federalist Society and the sort of conservative legal advocacy groups and and the I described it as a juggernaut, this sort of full service cradle to grave enterprise that identifies promising young conservative law students and then sort of grooms them, gives them all sorts of, you know, junkets and education and then gets them coveted clerkships with a handful of judges and then pushes them right onto the bench. And that is, uh, you know, sort of the Acme machine, boom, 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 that we have seen decades-long effort really pay off with Mitch McConnell pretty much blessing that that kind of plan. Um, what do we do on the left when progressives, I mean, they're just not as organized, they're not willing to march in lockstep, there isn't the sort of full-service even with ACS chapters, which I know the numbers have skyrocketed uh, since 2016, the numbers of uh, chapters in law schools around the country. But there just isn't that sort of unified, laser-focused, we are going to sort of from cradle to grave groom liberal judges. And I wonder how you think sort of structurally about ACS's role in that. Or or, or do you just sort of reject the idea that that kind of single-minded unitary lockstep proposition is something that the left should be tilting at? Well, the first thing I want to say, definitely tongue-in-cheek, is you have to give the devil his due. And I'm not suggesting that <laughs> that the Federalist Society is that. But uh, using it sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek, you got to give them credit for having had the uh, willingness to put together an organization and gather the funding and aggressively go forward to achieve their goals. Having said that, I, I don't think that's the approach uh, that progressives should use. I don't think there should be a gatekeeper that says this person is qualified uh, to be a a judge or a justice and this person is not. Uh, Because I actually believe in starting with the Constitution. Nowhere in the Constitution does it suggest that a private group should be the gatekeeper for who the president and the Senate can choose. It is the president who is to nominate. It is the Senate who is to give advice and consent. The American Constitution Society respects that. Now, having said that, I think it's critical that the American Constitution Society and other groups up their game now to try to identify people, uh, should a president or the Senate ask, who would be good for these positions. And that means identifying talented people when they're in law school, when they're starting their uh, careers, whether it's in private practice or in a government office uh, or the the, uh, Justice Department, and helping uh, people connect with, with each other. So having a pipeline where people are identified throughout their careers, but also a network 
connecting these people with each other. And this is where I hope to work hard to not only expand the number of student chapters, which, as you say, is over 200, but to connect them uh, nationally with uh, the lawyer chapters that exist in many states. I have to say with pride that one of the best examples of this is the connectivity between the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, American Constitution Society, and the lawyer chapter there, which is, I think, one of the best in the nation. And we also have to realize that this effort uh, should not just go on uh, in the classical urban law schools uh, or liberal areas. Uh, I happen to be giving a speech at a Fowler School of Law at Chapman University in Orange County, California, a few weeks ago. And I had a chance to meet with a group of really gutsy young students there who created a new uh, ACS chapter. The difference here, Dahlia, is that many times you're in the midst of a very liberal student body. This is the opposite. This is a situation where there are a fair number of conservatives, and uh, the progressives might feel a bit isolated. ACS uh, needs to make sure that uh, chapters like that feel supported. Uh, typically, the Federalist Society has much more uh, in terms of resources to bring in big speakers and people that uh, attract uh, a lot of attention. You know, the Federalist Society has asked me at all the law schools I've been at to participate in their programs with others, and I have, and they're excellent programs, but that has a lot to do with resources. So the ACS needs to be properly resourced, and, and it has a strategic plan that was created in anticipation of having a new president that specifically says this pipeline of talented lawyers has to be strengthened. We have to make sure that there is an actual networking between all the different uh, progressive lawyers in the system, and ACS has to be a, a thought leader on the kind of issues you've already asked me about, not taking a position, but facilitating a real conversation about what should be the approach for confirmation in the United States Senate? What should be the tenure of a federal judge? And finally, uh, the ACS and all the people we're talking about should be supporting uh, litigation, should be supporting uh, communication, and all the things that have to go to actually get this message out of a progressive change uh, under the Constitution, get it out to the American people, and get it into all the, the legal venues uh, that exist. So, this is the central challenge uh, for us, and uh, if we don't do it, uh, it will not be enough to simply hope that the election goes in a certain way. Before we leave um, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and the other groups that have kind of uh, placed themselves at the epicenter of seating judges, I want to ask one last question, and it goes to McCain-Feingold, <laughs> which your name is on, uh, you know, this signature legislation that was attempting, I think, to, among other things, keep sort of dark secretive money out of politics. And I, I wonder if you, in your head, can help me draw a straight line between sort of the rise of some of these very secretive groups with secretive donors. I know your former colleague, Sheldon Whitehouse, has been on our show several times trying to sort of sound the alarm about what it means to have secret donors who are, you know, funding ads for Neil Gorsuch or funding ads for Brett Kavanaugh or, you know, deeply involved in helping get Justice Kavanaugh seated. And I, I wonder if you see all of this as sort of originating is is the sort of typhoid Mary here is patient X, the death of the parts of McCain-Feingold that actually sought to stop the exact thing we're seeing now, which is unaccountable dark money kind of buying the judiciary. 
You know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. People somehow think that the McCain-Feingold bill was overturned in Citizens United. That is simply wrong because the foundational law uh, that they went after was the Tillman Act from 1907. It was a progressive law uh, led by progressive senators, including uh, Fighting Bob LaFollette from Wisconsin, and signed by progressive Republican President Theodore Roosevelt. And what it was, was a way to try to stop the extreme influence of, effectively, the robber barons on our society. Uh, The oil interests and others uh, had already captured the economy. And before the Tillman Act, they were uh, hell-bent on dominating the political process. So in 1907, it was passed and became the law of the land until Citizens United in in 2010. Uh, The corporations could not uh, contribute uh, to political campaigns. Somehow, the court decided in 2010 on a five to four, in my view, really bad legal decision that somehow without any real record that, well, this law really doesn't make sense anymore and it's not appropriate because corporations should have the right to to speak like everybody else. I think that was bad law. I think it should be overturned, but it is the reality uh, that we've been facing. And what it actually did, technically it only related to corporate expenditures, what it actually did was sort of change the norm or the attitude people had even about individuals spending unlimited money on trying to support a candidate. That was technically legal, but really wasn't done uh, until uh, Citizens United. And now you have this enormous amount of secret uh, dark money, as Senator Whitehouse has talked about. So one thing that people forget is if you look at Citizens United, yes, they made an awful decision, but eight out of the nine justices said, well, we of course assume that Congress will require the disclosure of all this money. Well, sure enough, that hasn't happened. That is what the decision is premised on. The decision is is wrongly premised on the idea that this kind of money sloshing around is really independent. We all know that's not really true, but it isn't even disclosed. So we don't have the opportunity to see where it's coming from. So people have to be given the opportunity to see uh, that this is a flaw that has to be changed in order to give the people of this country a chance to see what has happened to their electoral system and their campaign finance system. And so going forward, uh, ACS doesn't endorse specific legislation, but there has to be a conversation about should there be required disclosure? Uh, Should there be some real penalty for uh, so-called independent expenditures that aren't really independent. You know, is there enough? Are there is there enough teeth in the law? Is there any real enforcement mechanism in this country uh, if there are campaign finance law violations? Because as we know, the Federal Elections Commission is pretty much deadlocked, deadlocked most of the time because of the way it's structured with four Democrats and four Republicans. And so uh, the future is about, uh, of course, in my view, hopefully overturning Citizens United at some point. Uh, from my own personal point of view, but there are all kinds of legislative and other things that should be discussed and highlighted that could be done at the federal level as well as the state level. Uh, We forget sometimes, and I'm glad ACS is so engaged in this, it has a a state attorney general's uh, program to try to realize that that's a powerful venue if you have a progressive attorney general. There are many different opportunities uh, to affect change in this area, and I'm hoping ACS will lead the discussion of what can be done, what kind of litigation might be available, and then let uh, progressive lawyers and others go forward and see what they they want to do. But we, uh, we are at a very bad point in the history of campaign finance. The truth is the McCain-Feingold law was working extremely well, 
It had been successful in 2004, 2006, and 2008. We did not have these kinds of unlimited, uh, unaccounted for contributions. The system was working. People were raising large amounts of money from small contributions of 10 or 25 or $100 uh, through the internet, whether it was Howard Dean's campaign or Barack Obama's campaign, my own campaigns. To me, that's electronic democracy. And I believe the corporate and conservative interests in this country panicked. And they engineered what I consider to be one of the worst uh, Supreme Court decisions in the history of this country, Citizens United, because they were afraid of the democracy of all the people. Uh, and we need to change that. I want to ask you my my asymmetry question because it's become, I feel like it's become the linchpin of this show and I ask every guest some version of it. But here, here's the version I'm going to I'm going to pitch to you. We're talking about, you know, on one side, a willingness to win at all costs, be it, you know, Mitch McConnell doing away with blue slips, uh, you know, refusing to have even a hearing or a vote for Merrick Garland, just a complete repudiation of all the norms that govern the Senate, even when when you were there and it was tense and, and politicized, but nothing like what we've seen now where every single norm of, you know, comedy and of uh, just assuming good faith is gone. And and the, the asymmetrical warfare question is always some version of, you know, we're bringing a butter knife to a gunfight. And is the answer for Democrats to just only go with constitutional hardball? Are we now just saying Democrats have to do the same, that we are going to have to, as progressives, be the thing that uh, has broken everything in order to prevail? And so whether it's the context of, you know, misinformation and vote suppression in the election context or, you know, court packing, as you and I have discussed, do Democrats just going forward need to abandon any illusion of adherence to the sort of norms and conventions of good government? and of comedy in order to even be competitive in the field anymore? Well, just as I called the question of how progressive uh, people should be interpreting the Constitution and how do we articulate that as sort of the $64,000 philosophical question, you've raised the fundamental moral and political question. Is at what point and in what way does one respond to brutal tactics that break all the norms and all the traditions? You know, when I was in the Senate, I got in trouble with the progressives once in a while. I was one of the most progressive members of the Senate. But there were a couple of times where I voted uh, for a Republican nominee because I felt that there has to be some kind of comedy and fairness. I voted for John Ashcroft for attorney general because I thought the president had a right to have somebody at the table advising him, uh, even if he was ideologically uh, anathema to many progressives. I also voted for uh, Chief Justice Roberts for the court, even though I voted against Alito, because I thought, look, Bush is going to get this nominee. He's going to get this choice. And I thought he might be uh, institutionally more sensitive to the role of the Supreme Court uh, than some of the other conservatives. And in fact, he's proven to be so. So those were the norms I believed in. But you're right. The McConnell Senate and the Supreme Court and others have sort of taken a view uh, that they can just go forward and uh, that the Democrats will never respond. So what do we do? I don't think we give up our principles. I don't think we say, look, all our concerns about unlimited money in politics and uh, it should just be thrown out the window and we should use the same weapons as they do. But we have to think about how we respond to this. We also, I don't think, uh, should be uh, in the position 
of sort of uh, completely disregarding the norms that have helped make the United States Senate confirmation process work. Having said that, something has to be done about the fact that the United States Supreme Court was stolen uh, under President Obama by the United States Senate. Uh, In my view, the idea that somehow Merrick Garland wasn't even considered uh, when President Obama had earned the right to have that nomination considered and probably confirmed, to me, is something that has to be dealt with. So, in other words, one doesn't have to uh, go forward saying, look, we're going to use slash and burn tactics uh, in the future, but we do have to say Uh, and and this is something I think all progressives would agree on, including many conservatives and moderates, there has to be some kind of recompense here. There has to be some kind of recognition that the court was stolen. There has to be something done to even the balance. I was one of the former senators that signed this letter the other day about what's happened to the U.S. Senate. Somehow, there has to be a bipartisan agreement in the Senate that is as binding as possible, which is difficult, but perhaps in the Senate rules that will mean going forward that this kind of approach can't be used anymore. But I want to emphasize, uh, because progressives simply cannot stand back and let the conservatives do this in the future, there has to be some recompense for the things that were done that were inappropriate and wrong. And I hope the ACS can help lead a conversation about how that might work. This is a very tricky thing to do. I had a great talk with those students at American Constitution Society at Chapman uh, Law School, Fowler Law School, about this. And they had ideas. So I think it begins with the young, bright students across this country and the lawyers. But we, there is a way to solve this, I think. Uh, and, of course, one of the things that will get uh, the conservatives' attention is that if they don't do well in the election, uh, then they might be willing to listen on this a little bit more. But in any event, this has to be a serious conversation about how do you balance the need to create norms where people don't use extreme tactics with each other, and yet the fact that there have been really terrible things, unfair things done to progressives and to the rule of law. Something has to be done to resolve that, and that's the challenge. I, I feel like I've already asked you $128,000 worth of hard questions, <laughs> and I'm probably hitting my my campaign ceiling. But I want to ask one more, and I, I think this goes to, uh, again, something you talked about in your interview um, with The New York Times when they announced that you were head of ACS, and, and that is... You know, this week, President Trump attacked two sitting justices. Nobody defended them. He attacked Amy Berman Jackson, a federal sitting federal judge. Nobody defended her. He attacked a juror. (laughs) Nobody seems to have uh, defended her. I guess Judge Jackson did. You sort of opened by saying, you know, there are these attacks on the judiciary and the judiciary does not seem to be speaking out for itself. And I, I sort of I'm mindful of the fact that even in that article this week about the changing of the guard at the Ninth Circuit, there were veteran judges who sort of anonymously said, boy, this circuit is becoming unrecognizable. Some of this is conduct unbecoming. And they were immediately pilloried for, you know, complaining about the new Trump judges. I I wonder what how you frame this issue of, you know, we have the, the quote unquote weakest branch unable to protect itself clearly unable to stand up for itself. Um, I think ACS and 
you know, its its allies have to figure out a way to speak up on behalf of the judiciary because the judiciary is is not speaking up for itself, and I think in a politicized era cannot speak up for itself. What what does that look like in your view? Well, ACS is not only well positioned to do this, but uh, has started the process of identifying these moments that are entirely inappropriate. And the good news is, this isn't just something that people on the left are concerned about. Uh, just about everybody was outraged uh, that you had an attack on a sitting judge saying that that judge couldn't make a fair decision because of his ethnic background, that you would have a president of the United States going after two of the justices, interfering and saying that somehow it's his role uh, to decide whether they should be ruling in cases. The attack on the Justice Department that was responded to not by partisans, not by liberals, but by over 2,000 former Justice Department employees who basically made a career out of staying out of politics and, and really led in some ways by the deputy attorney general under uh, George Bush I. And so that creates an opportunity for American Constitution Society and for, for everyone to say something's terribly wrong here. Uh, what's going on here is, yes, the, the judiciary is being attacked and it finds itself uh, in a tough position to protect itself. But every American should realize that they will not be able to protect themselves in court if the courts are biased and are subject to this kind of political attack. So I, I want to conclude that answer by saying, look, there is some reason to believe that there's pushback. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has stood up. Uh, to the way in which the president has talked about judges. In his annual report, uh, he warned about politicization of the federal judiciary. And uh, yes, uh, many progressives, including myself, are not always happy with what the chief justice rules, but he is uh, speaking up and has spoken up about uh, the integrity of the federal judiciary and the inappropriateness of another branch trying to undermine it. So uh, we as progressives should coalesce with conservatives, of whom there are many, and moderates, who find this kind of conduct uh, really offensive to our legal system and, and to our Constitution. And so it needs to be done frequently. It needs to be put in the context of the range of things that are being done. In other words, if you just focus on one thing, uh, the abuse of the pardon power or talking this way about justices, that's not enough. The whole picture has to be painted. So people get the sense that, frankly, there's something rotten in Denmark about what's happening to our federal judiciary. It denies your right to pursue happiness if you don't have a legal system that you can rely on. Russ, before I let you go, I have one last question, which goes to, I think, what you just said, which is it's it's not just one thing. It's, you know, politicization at the Justice Department. It's the increasing appearance that there is a purge happening at the highest levels of uh, the federal government, the sense that DOJ is going to be weaponized to reward Trump cronies and, and persecute anybody who is perceived as disloyal. All of this is happening around us. And I know that you think as hard as I do about what, quote unquote, the rule of law means and how ephemeral it is. Uh, it's something that I think we believe is made of steel and it's in fact made of cobwebs. It's, it's a bunch of intersecting norms and values. Can you tell listeners who are thinking, I think that this has been a, a slightly depressing conversation in terms of what is. Uh, can you talk for one minute about what could be when people who care about what you just described as, you know, a neutral justice system that protects us all, including the weakest and the poorest? What, what can people be doing 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned this. Basically, you used the, the, something similar to what I understand was discussed when Merrick Garland recently stepped down as chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and one of the comments that was made is that it you know, turns out that the rule of law is fragile. And I don't think a lot of us understood how fragile it was until we saw the last few years. So that's depressing and concerning. But it also creates an opportunity for these young lawyers and young law students. I often, when I'm in the middle of one of my riffs in a law school class and have described one of these problems, I say, you know what? You have a lot to do. And I remind people that the old expression, may you live in interesting times, uh, is really a curse rather than a blessing. But, you know, their eyes get wide and they realize, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what my generation is going to do. And so there's an element of excitement and realization that their lives, their professional lives as lawyers will have meaning, that they will be able to be uh, critical in restoring the rule of law and whatever avenue they take, whether it's the Justice Department or whether it's uh, through their state governments or whether it be in the federal judiciary, there is something important for them to do in public service. So that's sort of the good news of it. You got a lot of, in my view, eager, very bright lawyers all across the country or, or law students who want their professional lives to have meaning. And restoring the rule of law and working for progressive change will be that meaning for them. And I suspect they're going to do a better job than our generation has done in that regard. So that, to me, is the good news uh, that will gradually become evident as they uh, use their skills uh, to change this very drastic situation. Senator Russ Feingold, former Democratic senator from Wisconsin uh, and longtime uh, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is the new president of the American Constitution Society. Thank you so much for being here. We look forward to having you at the helm of ACS. Thanks so much, Dahlia. It's great to be on the show. And that is a wrap. For this episode of Amicus, thank you so much for listening. You can keep in touch with us always at amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And we really, really appreciate your feedback and your letters. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks.